When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is People Every Day. Coming up, the race between COVID-19 and the Tokyo Olympics, from Coco Goff's big exit to fears for the gymnastics team. Plus, Spike Lee's accidental Cannes Film Festival faux pas, and actress Jamie Chung's journey from reality TV to the big screen. It's July 19th. Hi there. Welcome back to People Every Day. I'm your host, Janine Rubenstein, and it is Monday. There were a couple of entertainment stories that popped up over the weekend that I just have to get into right now. Uh, The first being the sad news that legendary rapper and beatboxer Biz Marquis, whose birth name is Marcel Theo Hall, died on Friday at the age of 57 with his wife, Tara, by his side. Recently, there had been rumors of his death circulating on social media. This is after news last year that he was in the hospital with complications from type 2 diabetes. His rep had originally shut those rumors down, but did confirm his death in a statement on Friday, writing that Biz created a legacy of artistry that will forever be celebrated by his industry peers. And it's true. His hit 1989 song, Just a Friend, has been on repeat this past weekend. And so many heavyweights in the hip hop community have shared their condolences, including LL Cool J, of course, who had to hold back tears in a video he posted. Just such a sad loss. The other story that caught my eye was Britney Spears not holding back anything at all. She took to Instagram with multiple posts over the weekend calling out family and others close to her for not having intervened on her behalf in regards to what she feels has been conservatorship abuse. She wrote, there's nothing worse than when the people closest to you who never showed up for you post things in regards regard to your situation, whatever it may be, and speak righteously for support. There's nothing worse than that. And it has to be said that her dad, Jamie Spears, has denied any wrongdoing and the claims of abuse that she's made in her ongoing conservatorship case. But no matter what happens in that case, Brittany has found her voice, man, and she is using it. All right. Well, later in the show, I talked to actress Jamie Chung about her road from MTV's real world to the big screen and how she's helping make a way for other Asian American artists. So stick around for that. But now let's get out of the States and head overseas to talk about the news coming out of Cannes Film Festival in France and out of Tokyo, of course. Joining me is People Deputy Editor Wendy Noggle. Hey, Wendy. Hi there. How's it going? Well, I'm trying to get back on New York time. So yeah, are you um, jet lagged at all? That's what not, I was going to ask. I, I'm hanging strong, but ask me about <laughs> four o'clock today. <laughs> Wendy had a kind of whirlwind trip out to uh, France to, you know, the front row, front and center for all that Cannes Film Festival had to offer. And we caught up last week about, you know, what we were expecting, what we were looking for. But we got some interesting news out of the big event, right? The Palme d'Or big prize. Uh, Spike Lee, of course, announced this in a, a rather unique way. So let's walk people through what happened. 
Yeah. So just to give everybody a little of context, Spike Lee was the president of the jury this year. And that is a very esteemed role. It's usually given to someone to recognize their work in film. And part of his role is to get to announce the winner. So the host of the show gets up and she starts speaking in French. And then she turns um, to the jury, including Spike in English and says, can you tell us the winner of the first prize? And at that moment, there's some confusion and he gets up and he announces the Palm d'Or, which is oh, the no. biggest prize of the entire festival. Can you tell me which prize is the first prize? Yes, I can. Mais oui. <laughs> cool. The film that won the Palm d'Or is Titan. Wait, wait, wait. The no. film that won the Palm d'Or. No. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Ouch. So, so clearly, it, she meant the first prize of the night. He somehow thought the first prize overall, and there was this miscommunication. Yeah. Lost in translation, too, as, because I'm, I'm sure with her switching, you know, immediately from French to go to him, and, and there was, like, a very big setup. And like, yes, oh yes. And ironically, God. it happened again later in the night when the moment was supposed to happen. They get up to give the award and he says Teton again and they, the host kind of jumps in and is like, no, 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 because they needed to bring out Sharon Stone. It was a little bit like the fiasco at the Oscars where they announced La La Land instead of Moonlight, which, and Moonlight was the big winner of the night. So, um, you know, to his credit, Spike Lee apologized right away. He said he made a mistake. He apologized directly to the director of the film, which was very touching. He said, in 63 years of life, I've learned that people get a second chance. This is my second chance. So he really owned the moment and he, he was sad to kind of take away some of the suspense. Yeah. And I, and I like what Maggie Gyllenhaal said. She's like, the moment was like an injection of humanity right in the middle of the ceremony. So it was just a very real mistake, a real moment. And um, this is, of course, a historic year for the festival, not because of the mishap, but because Spike is the first black jury president in a Cannes Film Festival. So uh, like, uh, just Wendy, tell us one of your most memorable moments from the event from this year. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I think in some ways there is that moment of just walking in on the red carpet and it is so majestic and you go up this steep uh, climb of stairs and they always say, oh, turn over your shoulder or look back. And <laughs> I'm sure that's because that makes for an incredibly glamorous photo. This, oh, yeah. you know, These are the French. They know what they're doing. But it was kind of just really amazing to look back and to see everyone there. And and you got to sit down with Gemma Chan, right, who was there uh, working with L'Oreal. And she talked about that. I loved what she had to say about just shifting back into the glam, coming out of, you know, the dark <laughs> sweats days of, of 2020 and being able to really embrace beauty and style and fashion. Again, let's listen to what she told you. I walked the carpet last night just with, with some other people from L'Oreal and and I don't know how you do it with such poise because it is daunting. Oh my goodness. Well, I felt so out of practice, actually. <laughs> it was all, you know, a bit of butterflies and yeah, not used to walking in heels either. I've been in kind of elasticated 
waist. <laughs> and the, yeah, it's been, been an adjustment getting back into the swing of it. What did she wear? What, what, what was the red carpet moment for Gemma that, that struck you? She was wearing beautiful Valentino and um, couture. And, you know, she just looked polished and incredible. And she also wore another stunning outfit for the L'Oreal Lights on Women uh, dinner. And that was really just to recognize female filmmakers and to give a fiduciary prize to beginning filmmakers to really help them get their start because there still is such a disparity. You know, only 21% of the top 100 films have a female director, cinematographer, screenwriter. So although there is a teeny bit of progress, there's still a long way to go. Nice. So speaking of that, Julia DeCorno of Teton, who won. So just kudos to her. Only the second woman ever to win the award since its inception. So I think, oh, wow. that, you know, that that's that's really great that, that that she was recognized. And it's quite a bold film. So hopefully um, people will see it in the States, nice. too. All right, Wendy, let's transition a bit. Uh, the Olympics. It is just all over my timeline. I'm sure yours as well. There are so many um, news bumps coming out of this, ones that are, you know, a, a little sad and, and a little confusing as we're heading into these games that everyone's been so excited about. There are a few COVID-19 cases popping up among athletes, major athletes. Um, I mean, two South African soccer players, one alternate U.S. gymnast and the big one, U.S. tennis player Coco Goff. So, just with you traveling, uh, what's your experience been like with COVID and, and, and what are you seeing how things are going outside of the U.S.? I think there's a lot of caution still outside of the U.S. At the film festival, they were checking everyone's mask as you walked in the door. If it slipped mm -hmm. off your nose, they would remind you to pull it back up. And there is a sense of concern about all of the variants that are traveling through Europe and, and what that might mean for yeah. any kind of lockdowns. I mean, it's so sad to see Coco have to withdraw. You know, people might remember she's the one who defeated Serena Williams when she was just 15 years old and yeah. really as a rising star in tennis. And your heart just goes out to these athletes because they train for four years basically to have this seminal moment. And then this group of athletes had to put that entirely on hold because of COVID and because the games were moved. And also then they, many of them really struggled to keep training because gyms were closed. You know, they couldn't be with, with teammates yeah. and there were all these protocols. So that made it even harder. And, and your heart just goes out to them to think that they, they put their heart and soul and sweat and tears into this and now to have to withdraw. So I think, you know, there's also a group of British athletes that have had to quarantine. And, and I think, you know, everyone's kind of cautiously waiting to see if, you know, especially with the gymnastics team, if it could spread to any of the other gymnasts. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. You know, hopefully everyone's being super safe, super cautious. You know, I'm so craving those games. I just want to have that moment of joy and just jumping up and down cheering. Yeah. And we'll be, we'll be keeping you guys updated as well. We have uh, multiple staffers who have headed out to Tokyo. They are en route slash halfway landed. Um, so we will have whatever news is coming out of the games here to share with you. Wendy, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Next up, Jamie Chung on Kicking Butt in her latest role and in real life. Stay tuned. Hey, 
everyone. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. feels like a lifetime ago when we first got introduced to Jamie Chung, who was a castmate on season 14 of MTV's The Real World in San Diego way back in 2004. But acting was always her true calling, and she has transitioned to Hollywood like no other. Since then, she starred in everything from blockbusters like Grown Ups and, and The Hangover Part 2 to shows like Once Upon a Time and more recently, the amazing, terrifying Lovecraft Country. You have to see her in that show. I can't even describe her character. Uh, she just announced her next role in Apple TV Plus' Mr. Corman, but now you can catch her in The Misfits opposite Pierce Brosnan, Nick Cannon, and others, and the film takes the audience on a suspenseful ride to steal a fortune, and Jamie is here to catch up on that and more. Hi, Jamie. Hi. How's it going? Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's a mouthful, right? You've done a lot. Um, So I have to start off, we have a couple of great things in common, so we share a mutual friend in Felicia. Who I know adores you. I love this. Okay, great. <laughs> but also, I too am from San Francisco. So I grew up in the Fillmore District. Amazing. Okay, great. My parents used to live in Japantown. Not, oh my God. Yeah, we're, we're right there. Neighbors, neighbors, yeah, like exactly. Gary Street. And right I grew there. Up, um, near City College, like West Portal. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so let's talk Misfits. You play Violet, who is an assassin, um, and th- she's got tons of spice, and, and she's not shy about anything. Uh, what did it feel like to kind of just get into a kick-ass, or you've played kick-ass roles before, and and, and we'll talk about Lovecraft Country, but, <laughs> but what did it feel to step into Violet's shoes? You know, I she has a really interesting background. She comes from a place of a lot of mistrust. Um, she was taken advantage of when she was really young. And so she, she hates men and she certainly loves beating them up. Um, <laughs> and so with, she comes together with this, uh, you know, a group of unconventional heroes in their own right. And, uh, you know, she agrees to go along with this heist, but in terms of training, you know, we shot this in Abu Dhabi. Ooh, so fun. By the way. And, you know, it was a true international eclectic group, yeah. Crew members. Right. And so most of our stunt team and coordinators and my stunt double, who's amazing, was from Russia. And so even though, you know, we I don't speak Russian and then they're English, they, they can speak English. But when you have the language of physicality of like, you know, it was just on like we just jive. Yeah. So fun. And I kind of had to prove myself because Rennie Harlan, the director, told me like on a previous project, you know, he had an actor that 
said that they could do the stunts. And then when it came to the day, they were like, didn't want to train. They were kind of, you know, they, they, were, oh. yeah. They didn't really <laughs> it's like those actors that put down like different skills on exactly. the bottom. Like, like I, I never juggle. played piano. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, I kind of had to prove myself. Like as soon as I landed, they're like, okay, you're meeting up with the stunt coordinator. Like you're going to show them some moves. And I was like, this is great. Cause I, first of all, I love a free workout, um, <laughs> but I love hand-to-hand combat. Nice. Nice. Okay. So, so all the, all this, all this fighting and especially what you said about um, men hating reminds me of, of Gia Gia yeah. on Lovecraft. Yeah. And there are some so, similarities there. Yeah. What did you think when you got that script? <laughs> I, was, I was like, they're not, they're not a dedicated whole episode in Korean, in Korea, from this person's perspective, there's no way it's never been done. It was amazing. When you talk about the Korean war, when you read about the Korean war, most of the context that you get are from experiences from the soldiers, usually American soldiers. Um, So to tell it from a person of color's perspective, you know, we're talking about a unit that was very much segregated in a time where the troops weren't supposed to be segregated. So we're talking about um, a black soldier and the perspective from a Korean woman. Never been done before. And I thought it was so brave and courageous, but you're also talking about the harshness of the reality, which was, you know, Jim Crow era in the States, having soldiers come back home, fighting a war, yeah. fighting for a country where they weren't appreciated and they're treated like second-class citizens, very much like how Koreans at the time were kind of like used as a political tool. Even in our own country and career, they're treated like second-class citizens even before the Americans came. You know, you had like the Japanese imperialists who came in and took all of the Korean land. So Koreans very much felt like second class. It was very there was like similar parallels, which was terrifying and, and frightening to realize. But that's the reality of our history, right? So it was really cool to to tell the story from a voice that hasn't been heard before. And that's all. I commend all of that to Misha Green. She's a goddamn genius. She is. She's a visionary. But you 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 hear how pissed everyone is, right? About about it only being a, a one season. That news broke a lot of hearts. I, it did. And you know, I didn't think that I was ever going to get a second season. To be honest with you, because what I loved about Misha was she's like, we don't, we're not saving anything for anything. We don't even know. Got it. You're not never, you never, a second season is never secured. So she, yeah. what I love about her as a storyteller, she's like, going to leave it all on the table. And then we have no regrets. And we did. That's true. Work, and we can walk away like, all right. It was buttoned up beautifully. So yes, I, I will say that. But I just, I, I, I wanted the next thing. Like, I, I didn't think it was going to be like in line, but it was just so gorgeous. And you guys did such such a great job. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and so just how was last year for you on uh, a personal level? It is just it, there were so many hurdles for so many people. But, you know, and we, we've, of course, you know, we've had that that horrible surge in Asian hate crimes and, and thankfully a big movement that has formed out of it to, like, stamp that out. But has has any of that impacted you or, or your family? And, and how are you handling everything oh, that's been going on? Of course. On? I mean, when you have the rhetoric of, you know, the last administration calling it what they did and 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 labeling it the China virus. Of course, you know that the repercussions you're going to feel at home, you know that people are going to attack anyone that looks Asian and and blame them because we we were the scapegoat. And so it was horrifying to see all of this unfold to know and, you know, being separated from my family on a different coast, like being scared for them. 
you know, businesses being vandalized, that's national terrorism, right? It's like when you're terrorizing your home, a place of work and, um, you know, being persecuted or harassed because of how you look, right. Or the color of your skin, you know? And so it's, it was, it was, it was really, it was really heartbreaking. It was, um, it was a really scary time and we're still not really out of that. And so, you know, it, it makes you become hypervigilant. It makes you become hyper aware. Um, it was really stressful, but what, what brought me a lot of joy and happiness was that communities came together. You know, our community yeah. in Brooklyn came together, started a community fridge, um, you know, and everyone did their part in a way, the darkest times did bring out some joy. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and we were all in it. Like it we did were not all in it together. Yeah, we were. Yeah. Um, so, so, but you, you've been doing the work as well. So, um, last year, HBO named you as an ambassador and spokesperson for its Asian Pacific American Visionaries short film competition. So it's just a, a great initiative that they have. How do you, how do you feel about where Hollywood's, you know, going in terms of AAPI representation on screen Well, and behind the screen? I think there's a long way to go because I think, you know, there's another study from a professor in UCLA that it came out and it it just showed the facts, the statistics of the people who, you know, the visibility of Asians. And it's, you know, we're, we're talking, a, we're talking a big game, but it's more of a long-term game, you know, but yeah. in terms of, am I satisfied currently? No. Um, do I think that people are doing their part? Sure. Kind of, but it's like, it, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle for a while. You know, these things don't happen overnight and it's only, it's 2021 and we're just getting a little bit of support. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. you know, we have filmmakers of Asian descent that are having their moment, but it feels like we're just beginning. And again, 2021. So we have a long way to go. Um, but there are programs out there for storytellers and writers. And I truly believe that's where the journey begins. We can't have actors that look like us on screen unless there's a story to tell. So it starts with the words, it starts with the scripts, it starts with the screenplays, it starts, you know, it it starts there. And so there are organizations out there like Cape USA, even NBC, ABC, they have a lot of um, writer apprenticeships. And so it's just getting that information out there. And I love that HBO you know, this isn't the first year that they're doing it. It's, um, it's an annual thing. And so yeah. it, it's nice to know that we do have that support because they see the value in our stories. And again, it's, it's show business. Everything is business, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so what was that transition like for you? Uh, just, just jumping out of real world, jumping into movies, TV, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how hard would you say it was? I mean, I paid my dues, you know, I, um, I was an extra on Rush Hour 3. I was an extra on Entourage, um, but it just requires you doing it. It's, yeah. it, it's hard. Like everything is difficult. Everything is difficult, but it just requires you to like, stop talking about it and just start doing it. That was actress Jamie Chung. For more on her and her new film, The Misfits, head over to People.com. And now, something to make you smile. As the Olympic Games get underway in a little under four days, one weightlifter has already made history. 43-year-old Laurel Hubbard from New Zealand will be the first openly transgender athlete who will compete for gold. The International Olympic Committee cleared her for Tokyo after critics claimed transgender athletes have unfair physical advantages. But many doctors and scientists say this isn't the case. Here's what Laurel 
Hall had to say about staying focused while on the mat. I think every athlete has to develop a certain amount of toughness because when you're competing at this level, you just can't let the distractions distract you. She's got powerlifting in the bag and is totally one to watch. Well, I will talk to you all tomorrow.